ladies week let's start what we have come into the room to do <laughs> right on here goes That's right. Today we're going to bring you a fabulous show. We have two guests with us today. We have Evan Pratt, the Washtenaw County Water Resources Commissioner. And we also have David Nowak in the studio, who is a master's degree student at School of Natural Resources, as well as an MBA at Ross, and has a background in environmental engineering. And we will be talking about urban ecosystem health. So um, Evan Pratt, along with being the Washtenaw County Water Resources Commissioner, also is part of an Ann Arbor band called Hullabaloo, which plays really lively, wonderful ska music, which we all need during this winter, winter time. Yeah, we do. Yeah, man. <laughs> so we're going to kick it off with one of those songs right now. This is Hullabaloo, America on Sunshine. Yeah. Free. 
Wow, what a lively tune. That song is going out to all the sunshine that we're having today, which is great. Because we need a foil to the uh, continuing Vortex situation outside. That's right. So, heaven, America on sunshine. I hear that, and I hear renewable energy and the environment. <laughs> Can Am I on track with that? I think so. That's That's right at the heart of it. So um, can you maybe tell us, you know, about yourself just in terms of when did environmental issues become so important to you? Sure. I grew up out in the country, actually, in central Illinois. So I grew up on a farm. There wasn't a lot to do. Um, We didn't have wireless then. But then again, even the TV we had, you know, was kind of like fuzzy version of PBS was about all we could get. So there's a lot of time to be outside and, you know, play in the creek, do stuff outside. So that was kind of the first stage. Uh, I ended up going to college. And I went as a chemistry major, but I found that that maybe wasn't best suited for me, at least in the level classes I was taking. It was a lot of, you know, memorization and repetition, and I kind of liked hands-on work. Mm-hmm. And I ended up at an engineering school, so I thought, well, civil engineering kind of fits with what I used to do. And so for the last 25 years, I've been an engineering consultant helping municipalities in southeast Michigan deal with a lot of issues. About 70% of my work has been on uh, water resource issues. I've been fortunate enough to work with communities similar to Ann Arbor or Washtenaw County or even some in Oakland County that have been really focused on water quality, flood control, and a wide variety of other water resource things like sewage overflows and prevention of the same. Um, So that kept me pretty busy. And in 2012, the current water resource commissioner, Janice Bobrin, was retiring and asked me to, if I would be interested, because it is an elected office in the county, if I'd be interested in running for that. And I, I thought about it a little bit, and it just seemed like a, a great fit where, although I'd be in a little narrower field of the type of work I did, I'd have a better impact on policy. And that's certainly proven to be true. Uh, Janice set a great legacy for me to follow. So we do get asked in Washtenaw County a lot of times from the state level, what do you, would you guys be interested in helping us formulate policy on this issue or that issue? How was the uh, election campaign? Well, that certainly wasn't something I looked forward to, but I, <laughs> I, I did what you need to do. I mean, it was good to knock on doors, meet people, hear what they're saying. The biggest challenge for me, which we'll probably confront today, is, well, what does the Water Resource Commissioner do? And if there was a limit on how many times you could use one word, I've used up the word except, because it's a little convoluted. First off, it's important to understand that no matter what state you're in, Uh, The general policy, whether it's federal, state, or local, is, you know, flooding problems happen, well, where it's lowest, right? The general policy is, you know, if someone chose to build whatever it is where it's low, that's their choice, that's their decision, but does really the public have an obligation to use tax money to fix a choice, you know, that Hmm. that people have made? Like Uh, Pinball Pete's. (laughs) (laughs) I I heard it got a little wet in there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, On the other hand, uh, uh, there's 150 years of history of folks, you know, settling in, and it really wasn't a big problem to put your sawmill by the river in 1825, but you build more and more and more and more and more houses, and as people build and build and build up the hill, it causes more and more bigger problems for folks down the hill, and, you know, voila, we have situations like we had back in June of 2013, where there's four or five feet of water on 
in the streets in some areas. And mm. there has been a lot of money spent trying to fix those issues, probably 40 or $50 million just in the city of Ann Arbor in the past 10 to 15 years. And things are better, but when it rains and something floods, you know, there's not much appreciation for the fact that it would have been worse if, you know, a lot of investment hadn't been made. So it's difficult to explain all the roles. Um, I don't know if people want to hear what does the water resource commissioner do besides, you know, try to deal with flooding? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Because flooding seems like the most visible sort of thing right. uh, that, that you would be responsible for right. uh, assisting with. But I imagine there are a lot of invisible things. We do a lot of flushing of toilets, for example, that we right. never, ever think of really what happens. Only when things go wrong. Right. 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 Well, and you've hit it right on the head. Public Works is all about dealing with issues that... Unless there's a problem, you know, no one knows that you're there. And that's really the mindset of most people that are in the business of providing, whether it's trash collection, street sweeping, snow removal, all of those things. Those public surface people work hard. And this winter, the snowplow guys, I think, win the award uh, for the hardest work. But my office only deals with rainwater primarily. So I've got about 500 stormwater management systems around the county, about 800 miles worth of drainage systems about a quarter of that is in enclosed pipes, um, mm -hmm. mostly larger systems, and then three-quarters of it is open drains. To put that into perspective, the city of Ann Arbor has roughly similar mileage of total amount of drains that they're responsible for and similar mileage of... Uh, pipes versus open ditches, open drains, just typically the larger ones are county-owned and operated uh, just because of the, you know, I guess you need a little more oomph, uh, mm. I guess, as far as financing these things. Most of the pipes that I'm responsible for in the city, in fact, you could drive two cars side-by-side side in the pipes. Wow. Uh, so it's some major infrastructure uh, as you get towards the bottom of the hill. So that's what we're best known for is the flood control. Mm -hmm. But we also have to deal with water quality uh, issues. There's some state mandates. Uh, not that people in the county and the city uh, and everywhere else don't want to keep things clean, but uh, there has been a need because of some of the pollutants that get in the water to focus extra effort and energy. Basically, the Clean Water Act in the 70s, the first thing you went after industry, get rid of the green goop that comes out of a pipe that's obvious and easy to see. Mm -hmm. The second thing was to go after sewage treatment plants, which will add phosphorus, and if it's a rainy time, uh, E. coli into the streams. Even today in the Huron, the recommendation is don't swim, you know, full body contact for 48 hours uh, after a after a rainstorm. Hmm. So we do get involved in some of the sewage issues after the fact as far as cleanup, but most of it is partnership work uh, to continue to do prevention on kind of the third phase of the Clean Water Act, which is deal with what's known as non-point sources. Uh, my yard, my neighbor's yard, city hall, the city streets, uh, really anywhere a drop of water hits, it's picking up and transporting something. Uh, phosphorus is a big issue in the watershed here, as well as uh, E. coli. Those are a couple of the major things that we have to deal with. And we have constant programs that involve public education and so forth, dealing dealing with those types of things. In addition, we've got a few lakes to control uh, as the water level and a few areas where people have asked us to do weed control as well in their lakes. Hmm. Sounds like you have a ton on your plate. I have a lot of great help. And again, my predecessor was really good at being an ardent environmentalist, but also good at picking sharp people to do work and setting good expectations. So I have a great team of about 25 to 30 people to deal with. On the side, I also deal with solid waste, 
household hazardous waste, things like fluorescent tubes, mercury. There's ways that people can drop these things off, and they can look at the county website and get more information on really, if you want to get rid of anything you don't want to have in your house, if we don't take it, we've got a great list of businesses that actually will take this stuff and recycle it, whether it's uh, all the colored plastic that people have their kids use for a few years and then they get older. Uh, There's all kinds of places to... uh, safely dispose of those things and most of them recycle this material wonderful so we shouldn't just be throwing our old play sets into the huron river no that 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 would be bad the shopping carts don't need to go in there either (laughs) this just in this just in. stop driving shopping carts in the huron river right so so again it's not necessarily glamorous or exciting but the people who do get involved in these type of things have a have a natural background a lot of people from school of natural resources and similar programs across the country uh, get into these environmental issues and i can tell you that people who are very very committed to their work it's fantastic well we should listen to another tune i think this one is get together takes a lot of people that's right Something that has got to stop. 
All right. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that tune because we've been enjoying our, our conversation sort of backstage here. David, you had a question for Evan. Yes. And it goes to what we were uh, just talking about over the break. And Evan, you said that there's different types of water within a city. And to start this off, can you explain why you don't dump your motor oil down the drain in the street? Sure. Yeah, the main reason is any drain in the street uh, basically goes straight to the river in the city of Ann Arbor. Outside of town, it may take a little longer to get to the river, but probably uh, some oil, if you dumped it in the street, would get to the river within a couple hours. And a quart of oil can contaminate about a million gallons of water, so it spreads out really thin and can cause all kinds of problems like that. So I talked a little bit earlier about having plus or minus 800 miles of drains in 550 systems and that the city has eh, just shy of 800 miles of drains in the city. There's different entities that have jurisdiction over the rainwater. And a common uh, misunderstanding, at least my office, the way the state statute is set up, I only deal with rainwater. But typically there's three systems of pipes in most areas, uh, particularly urbanized areas. You've got rainwater pipes. You've got pipes for sewage, which would include your water from your shower, your laundry, uh, the sink, the dishwasher, and of course all the other obvious places uh, that you'd be sending, taking sewage from. And then uh, there's typically the drinking water system, of course, that brings water into the house. Usually a municipality is in charge of drinking water and sewage. And in Michigan, uh, there's a county agency that's responsible for some of the drains, and cities are responsible for some of the drains. If you live in a township, though, odds are the majority of the drainage system, no one has jurisdiction or authority to actually do anything or spend money. The way something becomes a county drain is a group of people have a problem. They can send a petition to my office. If five people sign a petition, that starts the path to deciding whether or not it would make sense to form a county drain, what would it cost, and people are given the opportunity to, to weigh in and say, wow, we all think that's uh, not nearly enough of a problem to spend that much money on or people to say, gosh, that would make some sense. A couple thousand dollars a year for a problem this bad, I'm, I'm willing to pay for that. So it's a long convoluted pro- process. And the short version on the rainwater side is outside of the city of Ann Arbor or city of Ypsilanti, I would say about 80% of the drainage systems really are in that. No one has jurisdiction as far as spending money and fixing things. Uh, the State Department of Environmental Quality might be a place for folks to give a call to if they do see someone doing illegal activities. How do those um, drainage systems uh, get there in the first place if no one indeed has jurisdiction? So basically a petition process. About two years after Michigan became a state, the first drainage laws were enacted about uh, 1839, if Mm -hmm. I remember, around Lansing. Mm -hmm. They were primarily for public health. Michigan was one of the swampiest states, one of the four or five swampiest states. The Carolinas, Florida, Georgia were others. And these are all areas where, you know, wetlands have gotten removed and such. So they set up a process to allow for drainage because in my experience, and I think back in 1839 they had the same experience, people's desire to deal with a drainage or a public health problem related to rainwater is directly related to how close they live to the problem. People on the top Mm. of the hill don't really feel like they should have to pay. People at the bottom hill really don't think they should have to pay for all of the problem. So it's, uh, they've set up laws to allow for a fair, equitable process because people do share in the payment if they drain uh, to a drainage area. So it's a petition process to get it all started. But I mean, even before that, like the initial installation of uh, these drainage systems. 
Most of them follow creeks initially. So okay. the creeks were county drains. Mallet's Creek in Ann Arbor, huh. Allen's Creek in Ann Arbor. Huh. There are many sections where you don't see Allen's Creek, but actually along Huron Parkway and through County Farm Park off of Washtenaw, you can actually see what has been a creek that's been there for, you know, since glacial times. Allen's Creek, you can see it if you look at a topographic map. It's just that it's enclosed in 11, 12-foot diameter pipes under the ground. So generally they followed, you know, the courses that were there. But there's cases where, you know, there's a flooding problem and they go through a petition process and it's determined, holy cow, we got to build a brand new pipe to move this water two miles. And, you know, that can be very expensive. Or mm-hmm. in a rural area, we've just got to dig a ditch from point A to point B and Again, that can be fairly expensive, too. So a little combination of both, using working with nature, what was already there, and uh, that's really the direction we're trying to head now. If the strategies these days mostly are around you're never going to win if you try to fight water. If you punch the water like my son does when we go to the ocean, you know it always just <laughs> knocks you down. It's so strong. So <laughs> if you try to reroute water, it's always going to try to go the way it did before. So we try to find out, well, what does the water want to do? And how can we help it do that in the least harmful way? And is that a is that a fairly new development? I mean, you've been working on the on these sorts of water issues for a long time now. Um, are you finding that that mindset is a real difference from maybe how it was in the eighties, even? Or well, certainly there was an era where at the Army Corps of Engineers was like, well, let's pave the river and move it downstream so it's somebody else's problem faster. Because we can. (laughs) Right. So the mindset was, let's move the water faster, the, you know, conventional wisdom. Let's just get the water away from here where it's a problem faster. Hmm. Over time, people realized, well, that causes other problems. And I would say maybe it's not quite mainstream thinking, but it's a lot closer to mainstream thinking these days to say, you know, you got to deal with water at the source as best you can. Get it to soak into the ground. Uh, try to stabilize streams by recognizing what form they're trying to revert to and, again, help manage reversion to that form and minimize the erosion. Because these little dirt particles from erosion, a good two-thirds of the pollutants will just travel attached to a dirt particle. You get dirt, basically, mm-hmm. total suspended solids is the technical term. TSS. But, right, TSS. But dirt <laughs> in water is a real proxy for how polluted is the water. You know, if water looks muddy, don't we all assume that it's dirtier than water that's clear? And, in fact, that proves to be true when you test. The correlations aren't as great as we'd like to see and understand, but generally we can get grant money if we say, look, we're going to target erosion and target removal of suspended solids. And, again, those are visible kind of clues. Right. To the the quality of the water as we determine it. Right. We've got five senses, and you can actually use them all to figure out if you've got a problem (laughs) with water, let's say. (laughs) And a lot of this time, uh, this uh, reduces flooding issues, correct? You can you can reduce the frequency of flooding issues, but the bottom line is that hundred year storm, as they call it, you know, which in a technical sense, it's just statistical analysis of rainfall to say what's a one percent chance of getting this much rain this in any given year. You could have them happen in back to back years on back to back days. Statistically, you know, the, the odds aren't that great, but. that's so much water, you really can't do a lot about that. But the smaller storms where, you know, there's really no need uh, for Mrs. Jones's yard to flood, if we could just soak, you know, the first inch of water into the ground, at least least someone, some area might flood 
only once every three years rather than three times in one year. Those are the strategies where we can couple water quality improvements with water quantity issues and problems. But we, we don't ever tell people we're going to eliminate flooding. It's impossible. I learned a long time ago, and anybody in the business I'm in will tell you, there will always be a bigger storm. Especially now that climate change, I think, is becoming more and more a big part of the I mean, agenda, I'm assuming, for cities, for counties, certainly for um, for states. So in terms of like these statistical methods and calculating the 100-year storm, it, have you found that climate change is really becoming a big part or taking climate change into account is becoming a big part of that? Well, here's the politician's answer for uh, Dave's benefit. I, I don't go out and tromp around and tell people that, you know, climate change is something that uh, I have to fix or they should pay for right. or this or that. But I do, I'm very open with people to say, we've got data that includes the last few decades, which the the methods that we had currently or previously used to last year uh were based on information from the state that said, well, it rains this much, and you'll design your infrastructure based on that. Mm-hmm. Well, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, is a federal agency for climate and weather, I wouldn't say control, but, you know, observation management. You know, when you, w- since 1888, they've been keeping records of, how, you know, most rain, biggest rain, most snow, coldest, all of that stuff. They've got regional centers for research and assessment. Mm-hmm. University of Michigan, Michigan State, and NOAA partner for the Great Lakes uh, Regional Center called the Great Lakes Integrated Science Assessment Center. So if you went to www.glisa. Dot org, uh, what you would find is a path to the regional centers, or you could even go to glisa.umich.edu, and you'd find what's on the Michigan website. We've used information they've provided and information that NOAA just compiled last year, and what we've found is basically the uh, research documents that were have been used by the State Department of Environmental Quality to establish rainfall said, hey, a 100-year rain in Ann Arbor is 4.36 inches, 100-year, 24-hour rain. So that's over a 24-year period. What is a 100-year rain? I don't understand. There's a 1% chance that it might occur in any given year. Okay, so, so this is like the sort of max... It's a recurrence frequency based okay. on statistical analysis. So, analysis. So they relooked at how much rain we've gotten in the last few decades because that wasn't included in any of the calculations that uh, were were done in the past. I think mm. the last guidance was issued in the uh, probably the 90s, but its cutoff date was through the 60s. So when we look at more recent information, it's over five inches of rain. It's more than a 20 percent increase, and that is you know I don't have to go tell people that's because the Earth is doing this or the sun's doing that or you know pluto is impacting us in this way it's like hey all i know is when you crunch the numbers it's raining harder Mm -hmm. uh, over shorter periods of time than it used to we get about the same amount of rain in a given year in this part of michigan and other parts of michigan but the rain's more intense when it happens and the droughts are a little longer and a little hotter uh, in between so i don't know you know i'm not smart enough to understand all the climate science i've heard some really intelligent people speak about it, and they say you just you just can't say right here and now it's cold or it's hot. It's barely even an issue that you can you know have meaningful data on 
uh, on a regional scale. But we know there's more rain that's been happening. So I've, I've got new standards coming out that basically say, look, we've got to account for the fact that there is more rain out there. It's just uh, happening. When it rains hard. Yeah it's, yeah, it's it's happening harder. And when somebody says to me, well, that can't be a 10-year storm because I we just got three of those in a row. And it's like, well, you know what? You're right. Uh, that's no longer <laughs> the 10-year storm. And again, a 10-year storm means a 10% chance of reoccurring. And there's charts and tables for this stuff as to whether it's in a one-hour period, two hours, 24 hours. And, and obviously, the 10-year the storm, let's say, for a one-hour period has much less rain than the 10-year storm for a 20-hour period. You know, mm. to have a, a long, big amount of rain, obviously, it's a it's a bigger quantity and a bigger number of inches. So it's it's... It's, there's a little bit of complexity from a technological standpoint, but the fact is the hard rains are harder, and that means a lot of the infrastructure that was sized years ago you know, can't handle the same you know, recurrence frequency that it used to. And we're trying to work on that. It's constantly being worked on. Great. So let's hear, um, after a song, let's hear a little bit more about some of those adaptation techniques, how you guys are dealing with the fact that it is raining harder when it does rain. But first, let's get some more hullabaloo, hullabaloo. out to our listeners. This one is grazing in the grass.
that's energizing. I dig it. Um, Evan has also arranged an excellent happy hour, new happy hour thing on Fridays at Woodruff's in Ypsilanti, um, featuring on occasion his very own band, Hullabaloo, and last week, WCBN's own uh, Lawn Care, or some members, uh, performed there. And it was great. It's a fun thing. Yeah, we'll be back there on March 7th, so that's a week from today. Beautiful. I dig it. So um, diving in a little bit more into what you were talking about previously with these sort of new standards, um, I guess, could you give us a little bit of insight into how you guys are adapting what you're requiring in terms of um, like what developers now need to think about when they're, when they're building? Sure. In fact, just yesterday I was with a group of the development community called the Building and Remodelers Modelers Association of Greater Washtenaw County. They've actually got their annual home show coming up out at the Washtenaw Farm Grounds. If I hey. can do a shameless plug, uh, <laughs> March 14th to 16th. Most folks find that to be a great event. But obviously these folks have a integral impact, as do all of us, on how does rainwater work, how fast does it get soaked into the ground, how much problem does it cause. One thing I'd ask people to consider is, you know, whether or not development is evil. Think of your favorite place in the city of Ann Arbor or really any city, and I would say 95% of the time that's something that did not get built by the government. A private developer spent their money and they built it. And, you know, some of it's nice and some of it's not so nice. All of downtown Main Street, which a lot of people feel like that's Ann Arbor and that's nice, got built with private money. So I feel it's important to go and let people know what we're thinking, why we're thinking it. And the main changes in the new rules and standards that I expect to be adopted for folks who do development in the county that impacts drains that I'm responsible for will be number one to say, hey, the first inch of water needs to soak into the ground. About 85% of all rain that falls, falls in rainstorms of an inch or less. So even the ones that get all the press are the big rains that cause four feet of water on a street. The ones that cause the pollution problems are these, you know, silent, invisible ones again. So we target those from a water quality standpoint, but as you know, Dave and I were talking earlier, there's some incremental benefit that they can mitigate flooding a little bit too. So the main thing will be to get more water to soak into the ground. And just for perspective, uh, the 10% storm or the 10-year storm, as it's often called, has a 10% chance of recurring in any one year. That's what we use to size the pipes that pass water around. It's about three and a half inches currently uh, in a 24-hour period is, quote, a 10-year storm, and about 5.1 inches is the standard we're going to move to for the 100-year storm, which is the storage basins these developers have to install. Uh, however, we're going to provide a little extra credit for folks in the development community who do infiltration, so they won't have to dig a big hole in the ground, uh, basically, or worse yet, like they do in the city of Ann Arbor, they generally have to put a big concrete chamber underground, Mm -hmm. store the water, and release it more slowly after most of the rest of the rainwater has left town, typically over about two days. So by filtration, or infiltration, do you mean allowing green space to allow the actual ground to do its work? Yeah, that's the the whole goal of stormwater typically has been let's simulate pre-development situations. And the old thinking since the 70s when they first came in with the idea of, hey, we need to slow this water down before it goes downstream. The thinking at that time was, well, let's just hold the water and let it go. But really, if you think about 
pre-development, pre-settlement, more water used to soak into the ground. And as we were talking in the break, you know, about fisheries, mm. that's great for streams because that gets water into the groundwater and it might take two, three, four, five days for the water to get to a stream. So you have more regular base flow mm-hmm. and it's cooler water too, because it's gone through the ground, which, you know, trout are really fussy and they're the real indicator species. They like cool water. 70 degrees it. is no good if you're a trout. <laughs> <laughs> so aside from requirements for developers using private money are there any new standards for counties or municipalities in terms of the work that they do as far as using maybe pervious pavement right different projects yeah that's that's a great point first off kudos to the city of ann arbor a week ago this past monday they passed their green streets policy which addresses exactly that about 50 percent of that non-point source pollution in an urbanized area is actually coming from the municipal right-of-way in one way shape or form and for those who aren't familiar the right-of-way is not just the road itself from one curb to the other but typically the city owns a, a stretch of that green area or sidewalk area behind the curb Some places that might be a total of 60 feet wide or 120 feet wide, uh, something like that. But that's part of the strategy that Jennifer was talking about earlier. It's not just soaking water into green areas, but it's soaking water into hard surfaces like pervious pavements. So in the city, there's a couple of streets, Willard and Sylvan, have been done with pervious pavements. There's parking lots at the university across from Mitchell Field. There's a large pervious pavement lot. And these things, if you go look at them, especially if you look at older ones, like at Washtenaw Community College, I've been speaking nationally to public works professionals through the American Public Works Association. So I spoke at a conference of about 6,000 people last year and did a national webinar that went out to several hundred DPW folks. And it's a matter of, you know, if you can find a way to soak water into the ground in these areas, you don't have to buy a concrete chamber or uh, build a bunch of pipes. And in fact, uh, I showed them a picture from Washtenaw Community College. They did half the lot at their health center with regular asphalt and half the lot with porous pavement. And the one with regular asphalt is cracked. It needs patches. It has giant potholes in it. The porous pavement was built to allow water into it, and water is the biggest problem for roads. Freeze-thaw mm. causes mm. potholes. Witness There's what's going on now, right? Quite a few out there. <laughs> go to Discount right Tire if you're curious whether or not it's been a bad winter. Everybody I know has waited <laughs> in a long line there. Everybody who's had a problem, you know, has said, oh my gosh, it's worse and worse and worse every time I look around. But the bottom line is... Uh, Porous asphalt, from what I've seen, doesn't crack. And that can save thousands of dollars in operating expenses during the year. So the city's done some of that. It's not well-suited for heavier loading, and there's a lot of installation issues and cleaning issues. And actually, this past year, the city on 4th Street in Madison... They put all the infrastructure you need under the street uh, to soak in the water into the ground and maybe even to store a little bit of water just in the rocks and sand that are under pavement. But uh, they just used regular traditional asphalt on top. So they're infiltrating water from their road without actually having to use the porous pavement and get into there's just technical and engineering issues with that that say you just can't use it everywhere and that's what i've been talking about nationally and it's really people are kind of looking at ann arbor as a leader and part of that comes out of staff implementing some of the things in their green streets program beforehand Uh, but some of that is you know a city council that was very willing to be supportive of the green streets program a great example of a green street in factor is miller avenue 
it's not porous pavement. It gets trucks, so you can't really uh, use something that's not as strong, uh, which porous asphalt isn't as strong. But it's got 15 rain gardens between Newport nice. and Maple, and wow. they, they look kind of nice. Uh, you need to maintain them just like you need to maintain pipes, so that'll be an issue in years going forward to make sure that, you know, but it's a softscape maintenance, and you can see it. So the, you know, impetus to maintain it or to adopt it is a little bit greater. Uh, so that handles a lot of the pollutant loading coming off of that street. I read that Ann Arbor also has a rain garden program. Um, is that maybe more part of the residential public engagement, or is that also targeted at private Entities or municipalities. So the city passed an ordinance a while ago. If you add more than 250 square feet to a residential building, you have to deal with that stormwater, with that at least that uh, first flush, we call it, uh, that first in the city, it's a half an inch. So in some sense, there's a program. But actually, the county has a rain garden program. Uh, every Wednesday, starting uh, this week, we've got a five-week course to train master rain gardeners. This is the fourth time, I believe, the course has been offered. We've got about 25, 30 people in it. And those folks have built over 150 rain gardens uh, since it started. That's one of the graduation requirements is to install one. So they're at homes all over the place in town. And it's been increasing exponentially as we get more master rain gardeners and volunteers. So it's really a story about building a volunteer program as much as having a stormwater quality impact. But if you add in the rain gardens that have been done in the city, because if you're a city resident and you install a rain garden, you'll actually get a credit on your stormwater utility bill. Everybody in the city pays about 50 bucks a quarter, around 200 years off of a residential, or $200 off of a residential parcel. And you can get a credit for that if you put in a rain garden. So I'd estimate there's over 200 rain gardens in the area uh, currently. And you know, every little bit helps. That's a personal action that people can take. And a lot of people have found is I've got a wet spot in my yard or water gets in the basement. It's always a problem. It's always been a problem. And when Susan Bryan, our rain garden coordinator, goes and talks to him, about half the time in those situations, if somebody wants to address that, it's just, well, why don't you plant some plants there, dig a little bit down, maybe three to six inches, and create a place for the water to, for, for the problem water to go in a smaller area. And after about three years, the root formations of these native plants will go down five, eight, 10, 12 feet. And we found last winter when we put out an email to several rain garden volunteers on a rainy, wintry, frozen ground kind of day, like we had last weekend, maybe with a little less snow cover, uh, nobody's rain garden overflowed because of all of those little tunnels being created by the roots. So we're going to do a little data research on that this year to be able to demonstrate and prove that a little more clearly to start adding that into some of the options that developers have in future years. We need to gather a little more data on that to make sure I've got a responsibility to protect everybody downstream. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, long answer to a short question, uh, there's a lot of things that can be done in the cities right away and on hard surfaces as well as in those green areas. Wow, that's really inspirational. <laughs> Actually, maybe we should listen to a few uh, moments of a tune. Yeah, what do let's you say? Do it. More hullabaloo.
right. That was Hullabaloo's tune. I feel like, was that Scavenger? Yeah, yeah. That's hey. actually a cover tune, but uh, it's, it's one that's been out for a while, but we like it. I dig it. We like it, too. Wow. I want to talk about your music. But before that, um, this show covered um, another invisible issue uh, that affects water quality back, gosh, it must have been 2009, um, a large plume of dioxane 1-4, I want to say, that is coming uh, to the west of the city and slowly moving itself into the Huron River. Has that disappeared or... (laughs) It hasn't disappeared, and it doesn't look like it's going to disappear anytime soon. So, yeah, in musical terms, that'd be a you know pretty bad note to hit, let's say. Yeah, and that would just continue to sustain. Right. So it, it's a long story. Uh, you've heard me ramble on some other topics, and, and the shortest version I have is people could go to www.srsw.org. Uh, there's a website set up by a citizen in Sio Township who's been following this issue for at least the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plume of dioxane is one mile wide by three miles long. So it goes from about Wagner Road in Sio Township and a little bit west of there, really from Honey Creek, uh, which is a little bit west of Zebra Road even out in the township area, almost all the way to 7th Ave. Uh, right now in the city. So a good chunk of the west and northwest side of the city of Ann Arbor has in the groundwater underneath it this 1,4-dioxane at various concentrations. And this was coming, was it the the Paul Gelman water filter or something? Right. There was a company called Gelman Sciences that ironically was making medical filtration devices to clean up uh, you know, things in the medical processes, but one of the offshoots or byproducts was this 1,4-dioxane. So uh, to all you folks at the School of Natural Resources and Environment, this is right where we, near to where we have our campfire in the Stinchfield Woods, which is also why you can't swim or eat any fish from that gorgeous lake oh. that is out there and right. that you must wear waders. Right. This first came to light, actually, through, I believe, the, the, the individual was a student at SNRE at the time and swam in Sis- Sisters Lake. And uh, there was some testing done, et cetera. The issue is probably a 40, 50-year-old problem. There's information out there for a while. Uh, then it became a lawsuit about 22 years ago. Um, a big uh, a big boo to the Paul Corporation who bought Gelman Sciences. The Securities and Exchange Corporation requires companies that are publicly traded every year to put out a booklet about their performance and the risks of investment. And buried in the back of this 10K report, it says, we have some problems with our Ann Arbor facility. That's an investing risk. It doesn't say that we've had 20 years of a giant plume that's gotten bigger every year. We might be (laughs) contaminating all the water. Right. So so the groundwater's contaminated. The city shut down a well that supplies 15% of their drinking water. And the two core issues right now are, number one, uh, the allowable level of this known carcinogen was raised uh, a while ago. Uh, interesting story there, but you can read more about that at www.srsw.org. Right now... Um, The local communities have banded together, although we have no legal right or authority 
to get involved in this lawsuit. It's strictly between the State Department of Environmental Quality and Paul Corporation. Uh, many elected officials have gotten together, and I've been part of a group that has met with, uh, as the woman at the Attorney General's office yesterday said when we were visiting with the leadership at the Attorney General's office, she said, wow, you guys have really been connecting the dots then because uh-huh. we've made our presence known and our desires known at the governor's office uh, with the director of the Department of Environmental Quality, who has actually made Made some good commitments and been a good ally about getting the standard changed. Basically, the EPA has said, oh gosh, this is maybe about 17 times more toxic than we thought. And in 2010, the EPA said, you know, the allowable limit should really be uh, a whole order of magnitude lower than it is in Michigan. Uh, unfortunately, the state doesn't automatically adopt toxicity levels for everything that the EPA says. So this is one that uh, our legislators, our legislative delegation from Washtenaw County, uh, including three state representatives and one state senator, have all been lobbying for uh, lowering. Uh, Representative Jeff Irwin, in fact, has a bill in the House to have the legislature lower it. Uh, but we feel like there's other paths, which included, again, our visit to the Attorney General yesterday, which included folks from City of Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor Township, uh, who has many wells that are threatened by this mm-hmm. plume of dioxane, mm-hmm. as well as myself representing the county. And we met with folks at the Attorney General's office just to say, look, you've got a court case, a longstanding court case. Uh, some things are changing. We believe this level will get lowered. We believe the legislature will see the light in the administration. And... Uh, we, we hope the Attorney General's office is prepared to, you know, go into court and ask that the court ruling be modified and changed. And some backstory is in about 2000, the judge said, this must be cleaned up in five years. And again, it just gets wider and bigger and longer. It'll eventually hit the river. It's in groundwater, so it the, the only thing that really... Uh, breaks this chemical down as ultraviolet light. Hmm. So they do, the Paul Corporation does treat, uh, they spend about a million and a half dollars a year. It used to be more than that, but they do pump some of it out of the ground and treat it with ultraviolet light and uh, discharge it at a diluted rate into Honey Creek. Uh, unfortunately, the process that they decided to start using a couple years ago, ago produces another known carcinogen, and uh, they dump that into Honey Creek. So boo to the Paul Corporation. Um, and we are hopeful that regardless of what political party people in the administration are affiliated with, that they can recognize an employer that only employs lawyers and lobbyists in the state isn't one that needs extra protection. Mm-hmm. Our understanding is no one else would be negatively impacted by raising or lowering, I should say, the allowable threshold for this carcinogen. So that's that's the soapbox side. If people want the history, <laughs> it's www.srsw. Org. It's, I get asked about this constantly, and I, I feel bad. I don't have the authority to uh, make it happen. But like these personal actions with the rain gardens, in, in the end, a lot of people have turned to their community leaders and said, you guys need to figure out something you can do. And to the credit of the city of Ann Arbor and Washtenaw County, they've been very responsive uh, about uh doing everything they can to apply political pressure. So sometimes politicians get a bad rap, but folks do try to do the best they can. Well, and and the fact that you're coming together around this issue that isn't, you don't have a direct mandate for necessarily to deal with really attests to the importance of it, as well as your commitments to the water. Right. Certainly I'm in a position where we have to turn and tell people, you know, I, I can't really do anything about that, but 
everywhere we can. We try to direct people to the folks who are responsible and give them a name and a phone number. If we get a call about a flooding complaint, but it's not on one of our drains, we try to connect them with the county or the city if it's theirs. And I think that's what government should really be about. You know, we're here to provide service and to keep records. That's about the two things government's supposed to do. Obviously, we have to spend your money to do it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, appreciate that it's being uh, not my money. Let's be serious. We were just talking. There's not a lot of it to go around. But that other people's money is being spent in a sensible way. That's really a good thing. And Evan, um, I don't, I don't want to close the hour without actually talking about the wonderful music that we've been hearing. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, how, how did you get involved in Hullabaloo? And maybe what role has music played in your life? You work with some of these issues, which I, I mean, are pretty, pretty heavy issues as well. So is this something that you kind of turn to and is a good release for you? Well, it's certainly good to exercise both parts of your brain. I get involved in a lot of technical stuff at work, but there's a lot of research and I've gotten training out there that says you work both sides of your brain as you know, and your subconscious and your conscious, and you can be a little more effective. I mean, it's ideas got to pop into your head out of somewhere. And I'm fortunate to be surrounded by a good team and a lot of the ideas pop in from them. But music is a great outlet, stress release, and I really enjoy playing in a ska band. So come out March 7th. Wonderful. Um, so, um, the question I have for everybody is: We have a number of your songs remaining. Would we like to hear "World Not Beaten" or "Sunny Day"? Well, I'd say "World Not Beaten" is a signature song for Hullabaloo. That's the big audience participation, and it is about all of us trying to work together. I dig it. I don't know if we asked you what uh, instruments you play in the band. I've been a saxophone player since fifth grade, and I really enjoy that. I play the baritone and tenor sax and try, try to do some good things. Does the, Your wife must love that. The, late, the ladies tend to be into the sax, they say. This is true. This is true. I'm sure that's not why you picked it so many years ago as a young boy in fifth grade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although maybe it was. I don't know. There's no comment. <laughs> there might be a little blushing <laughs> and awkwardness now. Play on. Yeah, let's do it. Thank you so much to Evan Pratt for Thank joining us. Thank you very much for having me here. And we Thank will you. post uh, links to the various resources that Evan has mentioned today on our website at hotinhere.us. Thank you to Dave for joining us in the studio. It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you. This takes me back to my, my own college radio days. I want to talk about that more when you come in again okay. and join us on the show. Thank you to Gus Turner for engineering, and thank you to y'all for listening. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and this is Hullabaloo. Have a great uh, winter break, y'all. Living in a world, a world not beaten. Living in a world.